0: The baby on the bus goes. Wah, 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 wah. Wah, 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 wah. The baby on the bus goes. All through the town. The rappers on the bus go. Boom, boom. Oh, the big CIA. The Bloods and the Crips and the. Good girl. That's good rapping. The Bloods and the Crips and the KKK. Yeah, good girl. <laughs> we were just. Yeah, we did that one. Yeah, she's doing... A, we, she likes um, Where Is The Love by the Black Eyed Peace And they say... Um, We've we got the terrorists in the USA, the CIA, the Bloods and the Crips and the... KKK, good girl. Because, <laughs> you know, we're all about age-appropriate music. <laughs> Down.
1: Bye-bye. Love you. Bye bye. Oh, that wasn't so bad. All right.
0: Hey, we have a show. Free bird. <laughs> Do Free bird. <laughs> Play that song from Titanic. Free bird. That is the funniest joke I think that is going to happen today. <laughs> well done. <laughs> free bird. Oh man, that's good. I'm still working on re-roll, re-will rock you, with her.
1: She won't
0: do that one yet? Uh, no, not quite yet. Just saying it. Uh, what we do, we do some of it. Uh, <laughs> the sign says, no stairway, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hello, everybody. And thank you so much for joining the Free Domain Radio Sunday Philosophy Call-In Show. And uh, unfortunately, we did have a listener who was uh, had some questions about UPB. And I was going to call in, but unfortunately can't. Uh, so hopefully uh, next week or perhaps during the week, I'm always keen to, uh, to have questions of a concentrated philosophical brain-powdering nature. And uh, so I, I, I must say uh, that um, I, uh, I have to tell you something and its personal. And uh, it was a moment of self-revelation that was uh, a chilling and, uh, and horrendous and powerful in its depth. Uh, the other day... Um, well, l- l- let me preface by saying that I'm, I'm extraordinarily cheap. Like I'm, I'm the kind of cheap guy that makes Scrooge McDuck look like Richie Rich. Uh, so I am uh, like, you know, pry, pry money for my cold dead hands, except for freedom and radio, who is my philosophy mistress, bitch, who I will lavish all kinds of attention on, uh, and money. But, um, I'm, I'm very cheap. I don't like to spend money. That's what I'm saying. And I, I mean, it comes because I mean, I know why I, mean, I grew up, I was brutally poor. Like I remember trying to join a swim team, and it was $7 registration. I was working two jobs at the time, but it was all going on food. I was 15 or so, rent. And I just had no money. I had to keep <laughs> to keep lying to them, oh, I'll bring it next week or whatever, and they eventually just stopped pestering me, I think, figuring it out. I've been working since I was 11. I put myself through school with some help from from grants and all that. But I'm just, you know, having really um, grown up uh, on the, uh, the poor side of the tracks, uh, I'm just cheap. So <laughs> I had this moment the other day. I was um, uh, filling up the dishwasher, and I remembered that the butter dish needed to go into the dishwasher. And um, so I opened up the butter dish, and there was like half a thumb size of butter left. And I thought, I really don't want to
1: waste this. And I reached out my hand, and
0: I was about to take that pad of butter and put it in my mouth. Because I did not want to waste it. I mean, is that World War II starvation levels or what? You know, like I didn't even want to put it on anything because I wasn't hungry. I just wanted to eat chemically colored animal fat. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, I might waste approximately one and a half pennies worth of butter. Oh, man. It was just a moment where I said, you know, I should probably... relax the manacles (laughs) on my wallet just a little bit um so i just uh i just wanted to point that out um and and literally when i'm sweeping up and i see that isabella dropped some food there is that moment you know is it a is it a 10 second rule a 10 minute or can we stretch it out to 10 days if it's not too hairy these and other philosophical questions <laughs> can be discussed on today's Sunday show. So, eat it. You know you want to. See, you kinds of people don't help me. <laughs> you people in the chat room don't help me. It's your survival instinct. I think that in my um, uh, it's somewhere deep down in my genes is this belief that the ice age is coming <laughs> and I better fatten up quickly so that I can survive the lean years. Anyway, I just uh, wanted to say that it's why I never get ill because I have no limit on uh, food. wrap it in a kleenex and put it in the fritz that is uh that is also an approach and and i was cleaning out the car the other day and came some from some cheerios that i swear to god were so old they were they're just hieroglyphics on the outside and i was like hmm they don't really go off do they and i wasn't even hungry that's the thing but i can't waste three cheerios that i found down the back seat of my
2: car oh help me
0: It's just, oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, I just sort of wanted to mention that because there may be other people who have challenges along these lines and you're not alone. So I have decided to, um, did I eat them? Actually, no. Actually, in both of these instances, I decided not to. But I think if I'd been slightly hungrier. Oh, and we we, went out for dinner the other night. And, um I, you know, they, they, because I eat less now than I used to, um, the, uh, the the restaurant portions they give me are too big, right? And it's always a tough question, you know, like how much food is left on your plate? How little has to be left on your plate before it's just too embarrassing to ask for a doggy bag? You know, like if it's just a smudge of cream and a piece of broccoli, it's like, can you bag this for me, please? Because I don't know. I can sprinkle it on my coffee tomorrow. Uh, and that, you know, my my threshold for asking for a doggy bag is pretty low. You know, if I can see anything on the plate, <laughs> you know, scrape it and put it in a doggy bag for me. But um I just thought that was... Um, so, yeah, I did actually ask for a doggy bag for like, I don't know, a couple of bites of food. And uh Christina was quite patient with me. <laughs> she hid under the table. <laughs> so.
1: uh, am I a closet plate liquor?
0: I think that some mystery is important in our relationship. <laughs> so let's not necessarily ask that, right? Yeah. When the waiter doesn't offer you or when the waiter says, really? You know, I could, sh- you could just not tip me <laughs> when they feel that bad for your level. So. <laughs> yeah. Cause now after 1700 podcasts, I feel it's important to have some boundaries in our relationship. <laughs> yeah. Now's the time to start erecting. <laughs> Personal space boundaries. Ah, ooh, Cheerios plus butter. That's right, Rob. That is good. We don't have containers that small. <laughs> Sounds like me buying condoms. Anyway, uh, let's um, uh, let's move on. It's cold. <laughs> do we have any? Uh, do we have any callers? <laughs> By the way, just out of curiosity.
2: Yes, Mister Staff. Uh, I would like to speak to you briefly about aliens.
0: Aliens, uh, one kind, uh, Steven Spielberg or Mexican?
2: <laughs> well, um, it's it's sort of a, a long story. I'll try to make it, it as brief as possible. Um, right up front, I'm very skeptical towards the argument towards uh, the government hiding aliens in uh, underground bases. And it's up to us to crack the case and reveal all these secrets. But I do have a friend who does consider this argument uh, about the government hiding these aliens. And she wants me to go talk to a, per- a very convincing person this
0: evening. Sorry, uh, I'm aliens. just having a bit of trouble hearing you. Let me make sure I understand. So you're saying that you have a friend who believes that the government has found aliens. This is sort of the X-Files Roswell stuff. Is that right? Absolutely. All right.
2: And supposedly, uh, this guy has worked for the government and has been to these underground bases or knows somebody, uh, who has been to these underground bases. And so he goes on to give her all these, all this elaborate information about, uh, all these bases and about all these things that he's seen. And she asks to see these photos or any sort of empirical data. And once, once, uh, she asks for this information, he gives her, like, uh, reveals these vaguely, uh, um. Um, revealing photos of uh, lights and everything else, and and goes on to tell her uh, that uh, you have to be truly ready in order to actually see the uh, the, the further uh, information or photos about the aliens. You know, he talks about how anybody that dives into this alien phenomena without preparation may go crazy. And so my question is, um, how should I approach this guy? Because I I see sort of. Uh, um, a link between uh, this type of conspiracy and uh, religion, how uh, you sort of have these secrets or uh, you, you have uh, people just chasing their own tails, like dogs chasing their own tails, just going and wasting their time off of these issues that you really don't have the information for.
0: Right. Well, I'll give you a, a few of my thoughts about this, this question of aliens, and it, it is a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I have no doubt that there's Intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Um, I, I think that's, that's fairly indisputable given the probabilities and the numbers of star systems and, and so on. So I'm sure it's out there. Uh, the odds of it having any kind of technology, even remotely close to ours, is completely tiny. Like, you know, this Star Trek universe where everyone's kind of at the same level of development, like you come across the Romulans and the Klingons and all, they're all... Well, we've all got spaceships with about the same armaments and so on, but that's never going to happen. Um, there's never going to be a federation of, of coincidentally aligned planets. I mean, think of... Um, Three hundred years in in in, in um, human history, right? So three hundred years ago, we'd have no te- almost no technology in common with the alien with, with other cultures. Three hundred years ago, three hundred years in the future, it's going to be the same thing, and that's a three hundred year gap. And of course, the universe is what twenty billion years old. The odds that anything's even within three hundred years of development are completely minuscule, and so there's not going to be uh, any contact with aliens who are at a very similar. Uh, level of development. That's, to me, almost uh, a non-possibility. The reason that I don't believe that there are any aliens uh, buzzing around uh, is is quite simple, that there's no way to get interstellar technology and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the government's never going to produce it, obviously, because the government is just a massive consumption of of everything. And the government only got to the moon because it pillaged a whole bunch of uh, private sector engineers. Uh, and ever since then, NASA has just been twiddling its uh, afterburners. So um, the government's never going to do it. The only way that we're going to get interstellar visitors if is, is because they have got a stateless society and a completely free market system where the incentive to build these spaceships and explore is driven by, by free, free market enterprise. That's the only conceivable way that we're going to get visitors from other star systems. They're not going to come here in fleets of battle destroyers or anything because the government can't do anything that complicated, of course, right? And so the only reason that that they would come here would be to trade because they're a free market system. They have no government. uh, And so they have all of the unleashed human creativity and potential of natural born traders, which is the least exciting horror film in the world. (laughs) But um, uh, so they're only going to come here to trade. They're not going to come here to beam up residents of Alabama for anal probes, um, however fun a feature film that might be. Uh, They're not going to come here to hide behind clouds, dart out on dark and stormy nights, show their asses, and then vanish back into the clouds. They're just – they're not going to be here for that. They're going to be here because they're in a free market, stateless system, and they've come here to trade, in which case they're going to come down here. You'll know that there are space aliens when holographic coupons land on your lawn for like 50 cents off space juice or something like that. That's how you know that the space aliens will be here because they will unroll a bazaar or a marketplace. There will be an interstellar mall that they will teleport you up to where you can buy all kinds of seriously cool shit. That's how you will know the space aliens are here. They are not going to be lurking around. They are not going to be warlike or anything like that because if they are warlike, they will have self-destructed long before they go to interstellar travel. So um, that's how um, that's how we know they're space aliens. I'm just, I'm going to wait for the specials. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm waiting for, for proof of alien life forms. Uh, and of course, but of course, the odds that they would have anything that they would want to trade with us would be enormously tiny because of the disparity in development. They're going to be millions of years ahead of us or millions of years behind us. Uh, and I think space travel, for that very reason. Yeah, discount vacation packages, right? The moment that I can, uh, the moment that they'll fly me to Alpha Centauri if I sit through a presentation of a condo sale, that's when I know <laughs> that space aliens will be here, and that's when I'll be comfortable with the facts. They won't hide, right? Um, so they're, they're not going to have anything to trade with us. So I think that the idea that the government's sitting on alien technology, the only alien technology that um, the government is sitting on is you know whatever black evil magic juju's powers Karl Rove's heart. That's the only thing that I think they're sitting on. Everything else is just made up.
2: Right. So should I, when I talk to this guy, should I provide uh, similar arguments that you have for this proof of God?
0: Why why do you want to talk to this guy?
2: Um, Well, I'm talking to this guy just because um, a friend, she wants me to talk to him because she's having her doubts as well, and she wants sort of my support. Um, is it
0: that you want to? Uh, do you want to? You want You want to get with this chick?
2: Uh, well, she's just a friend. I mean, no, no, not at all.
0: Okay, so it's it's, just, it's not a romantic thing, right? Yeah. And is she a friend right. because you uh, value her intelligence, or wisdom, or rationality, or virtue, or courage as a whole? Yes. So her susceptibility to this sort of nonsense is that a sort of isolated thing within her personality, or is that more common to who she is as a whole?
2: That's. Uh, I think it's an isolated thing. She is. Um, I guess she's more of a, a relativist when it comes to things. Um, she. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of issues that uh, she really dives into. Type of intensity where you really can't prove it, but this is something that she has considered. Everything else, it seems like she's really on track of uh, not being irrational with making her decisions on.
0: Right. Well, I mean, if if you want to, and of course, you know, your friendship infinitely better than I do. I would not get drawn into this conversation with the woman. What I would say, you know, this is and this is a general note, right? So I hope that you don't mind if I give a, a, a relatively short speech. Um, I think it's very important when someone has a kind of intensity to their beliefs and when she's sort of saying, you you got to talk to this guy, he's got the proof. That's kind of an intense thing, right? It's not like, you know, I like Patagonian art and you don't. It's like, so what, right? Uh, but it's like, no, you got to go and talk to this guy. He really is into Patagonian art. He'll show you all the best stuff and you'll change it. Like the, there's a kind of intensity to that interaction that you would be wise and I think a good friend to not ignore. Right. So I, I wouldn't fall into going to talk to this guy and, and debating the proofs or disproofs of, of this, that, or the other. What I would say is to my friend, I'd say, well, you, you, you seem to be very intense about this. Can you tell me why this is important to you? Right. And, and don't, you know, like, don't get, don't get sucked into running around with whether this stuff is true or not. And this is, this is a very, very important thing to ask people as a whole. You know, why is this, important to you, right? So somebody's like, the government is helping the poor and this and that, and you've got to pay your taxes to help the poor. Or you can argue about the poor and, you know, maybe that's fine. But I think a far more important question is, why is this so important to you? And you will find out, you will find out something deep and emotional and intimate and I think important about your friend just by asking that question, why is this so important to you? What emotion? What thoughts, what history, what feelings are driving your intensity in this area and I think that's um, that's an important thing. You can ask that about the nine the truthers if you want like why why are you so invested why What does this mean to you that it 's so important to you that you spend so much time and so much energy dealing with this now i mean of course, people could ask the same thing about me, and i mean i can give i 've given answers before, and it 's not you know really about that but When people particularly have something that's non-empirical, or even more particularly when they reject empirical or rational arguments, the belief system is serving an emotional need. And dealing with the belief system that is serving an emotional need, as if it is derived from some reasoned evidence and argument, is irrational. If somebody has a belief system that is irrational, then... Don't deal with the rationality because the rationality doesn't apply. And you can watch the bomb in the brain part four for the science behind this. People will invent ideologies to deal with particular things in their history. And until you can deal with the actual source of the belief system, there's no point. In fact, it's counterproductive to try and argue with someone about a belief system that is serving a deeper emotional need. Unless you can connect with them on that deeper emotional level, the arguments are simply going to go nowhere. Because you are missing the purpose of the belief system. And it's not because she's looked at all the objective evidence and reluctantly come to the conclusion and so on, right? And, I, I mean, I say this just because, I mean, I've had sort of three or four major revolutions in thinking of my life. And I was, praying, I was brought up uh, very religious, and I remember as a, a very little kid being in, enormously uh, religious and, and believing in, in gods and, and all that, uh, God in God and so on. And uh, then I sort of gave that up for uh, for atheism, and then uh, I was a mild socialist uh, in my early to mid-teens, and then I gave that up for objectivism, and then I gave up objectivism for what I would term philosophy as a whole, which is, of course, one of the results is anarchism. And if you haven't gone through these revolutions in belief where you have compared what you think to what is actually provable and rational, then you can't be sure— if you haven't gone through one of these revolutions in your life, and we're all, almost all of us, are raised with lies and nonsense, and so you have to go through these revolutions to get any sense of empirical reality. If someone hasn't gone through this, then it, for sure, for sure, with a virtually hundred percent certainty, the beliefs that they have are serving some emotional need. And to argue at the surface level of beliefs is uh, is like trying to fish by shooting a bullet across the top of the waves. It just you're just not doing anything that is, uh, is productive. So I would just ask, you know, why is this important to you? What feelings do you have around this? Where do they come from? You know, talk about what is really going on rather than the surface effect of what is really going on. Does that, does that make any sense? That
2: makes, that makes a lot of good sense, um, definitely. Um, I've already made a commitment that I would go down there, so you suggest me just listen to what he has to say and then ask him her questions after we uh, talk to him.
0: Uh, I, I would not go down to listen to what this fellow has to say. I would say I'm not going to go to listen to what this fellow has to say until I understand why this is so important to you.
2: Ah, uh, I see. Okay.
0: Because, you know, don't don't get sucked into it's about the facts. It, you know, deal with what is driving the person emotionally. Uh, and then, you know, if you find out that, uh, you know... <laughs> Through whatever, you have more respect for these. But, but if there's a lot of avoidance, if there's, well, it's just important because it's important. Like if there's no self knowledge about the intensity of the beliefs, then there's no point chasing the beliefs because without self knowledge, we can never be objective. And so I would, don't, don't even go down the road of, of looking up facts until you have found out why this is so important to her. And that's going to deepen your friendship a hell of a lot more than going to listen to some guy talk about space aliens.
2: Thank you very much. You know, that's, um, that's definitely something I'm sure you've up in doing is sort of looking at the facts and not really looking at what lies beneath all of these uh, sort of assertions and beliefs. And that's something that I'm, I'm going to have to work on myself is to be more in tune with these um, um, Uh, further things that are actually causing these sort of assertions and beliefs.
0: Yeah, the the number, and I appreciate that, and I I certainly wish you the best of luck with that conversation. I think it will be a turning point in your friendship, if not your relationships as a whole, which I think would be wonderful. But there are very, very few people in this world who have gone through the rigorous and sometimes ghastly and always exciting self-challenge of reasoning from first principles With evidence and casting aside all prior prejudices and scar tissue and nonsense that people have told and stuff the government schools have said and stuff the priest has said and stuff the parents might have said there's very few people in this world and i i I take it as like if i meet that person it's like meeting a guy with two heads (laughs) sort of literally right but there are very few people in this world who have actually reasoned their beliefs from from first principles and even those of us who have done so are still susceptible to confirmation bias are still susceptible to the, you know, the fallacy of sunk costs. Like I've sunk a lot of energy into this position and therefore I don't want to turn it over. And those things aren't bad. Confirmation bias isn't bad. It's inevitable. But you just have to be aware of it. The fallacy of sunk costs is not always a fallacy. I mean, I've sunk a lot into reason and evidence. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing, right? So, um, uh, so I think that it's, it's really important to be very skeptical. And whenever people have that peculiar intensity and they want you to do stuff, then uh, I think it's really important to say why. And this is true for people who listen to this show, right? If they say, if they're really, really intense about this show and they really, really want, I think it's important to say, well, why am I so intense about this show? Why is it that it's so important for me to share philosophy with other people? That doesn't mean that it's bad for you to want to share philosophy with other people. I hope not, because I certainly do. But it's really important to know why you want to do it so that it's not sort of a desperate drowning man clawing at people trying to get their attention, which my guess would be more scar tissue than objective, an objective desire to help people understand stuff. So uh, it's just, you know, the self-knowledge about why you're doing what you're doing, what are the thoughts and feelings driving any intensity that you're experiencing, why is, is that occurring for you, I think is really, really important to know. And knowing it doesn't mean that it's wrong, it doesn't mean that it's invalid, and it doesn't mean that anything you're saying is wrong. But just knowing that will change who you are and your relationship to philosophy, and that's a very good thing. You can never ask why it's so important for you to donate to FDR. Um, there's uh, somebody's just post. Why is it so important for me to donate to FDR? Uh, that is the one uh, the one area where um, self knowledge should be avoided with uh, Mason tasers. I think that just you know just keep donating. That's no no. It is important. It is very important. I don't want anyone to donate any penny a penny to FDR out of a feeling of guilt or obligation or or a have to or a should or a, some sort of ethical imperative. Right? You donate to FDR. I hope, out of love and not out of love for me or love for FDR or even love of philosophy, but love for the good that philosophy can do in the world. Love of your fellow man, love of your fellow women and hope for the future. That's why I think, you know, why do you light a beacon on a lighthouse, right? So that ships don't go into the reefs and into the rocks. Not because you love fire, not because you want to look cool in firelight, not, you know, because you want to help uh, people. And I think that's why, I mean, that's, I think, a good reason to donate. And I certainly would not want anybody to give me a penny out of uh, of obligation or guilt or anything like that. Uh, Somebody's asked, what do I think about the unconscious meaning and symbolism behind UFOs, and especially creatures like the atypical alien gray? I was terrified seeing those things in books and movies as a kid, and they still creep me out, their appearance, magical powers, etc. I think I know now why, given my history, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, I think uh, that uh, I can't say anything better then um uh, the the guy who wrote um a candle uh, in the dark billions and billions who's that guy Carl Sagan Carl Sagan uh, Carl Sagan wrote in the candle in the dark he's got a whole chapter on this uh, he believes uh, that um uh, it is dim, dim and this is not a diagnosis obviously it's just what he he argues that it's a dim and distant memory of childhood sexual abuse that is recast as aliens probing my ass. You know, I mean, I hate to put it that indelicately, but that's his theory. Uh, I would, um, I don't know enough to know whether that's true or not, and I don't even know that he did or does. Oh, I guess did. But um, I do, I agree with you. Those silent, staring, almond-eyed, glowing-faced, naked, knobbly-elbowed space aliens, they're pretty freaky, and they're androgynous, they're sexless, right? Uh, I think they are pretty creepy, and they are uh, pretty creepy. And uh, I definitely would look at, um, you know, uh, when kids are very young, they distort the human body uh, naturally. Uh, And I've mentioned this before, but in one of Alice Miller's books, she talks about Henry Moore, who is uh, a sculptor, that he drew enormous legs and feet and tiny heads and bodies on women. And he wrote in his autobiography that he would spend hours after hours after hours as a kid rubbing, uh, I think it was liniment oil, into his mother's feet. And so the, for the rest of his life, he replicated these bodies that were basically a child's view of a mother seen from where her feet are looking looking upwards. Uh, children, when you see children draw people, right, the first thing they do is they draw a circle with two legs. They don't get the torso, right? And, and the reason for that is that children have these enormous heads. I mean, Isabella can't even reach the top of her head. She's starting to learn how to wash her hair. Uh, and uh, she can't reach the top of her head, so she, she knows she's a lot ahead. And she looks down; she can see her legs, right? But she can't see her torso. She can't really look down and see her torso, so she doesn't have a mental image of her torso. And of course, she uses her legs to walk around, and um and she uses her arms to grab things. So a kid will draw a circle, eyes, and a mouth. They won't they won't usually draw the nose to begin with, because they can't see their own nose. Right, and they, and Of course, they can't see their own eyes, but they know they have eyes because of eye contact with others. And they'll, sh- they'll draw a smiley face with legs and arms because they use their arms, they walk with their legs, they can see their arms and legs, and they can't see their torso very well. So when you see a distorted body image that is common within mythology, then uh, I would actually first look to um, where in childhood that perception would occur that someone, uh, someone is like that. Uh, And, of course, the fact that aliens are nude, the fact that they're expressionless, uh, and this to me is all, it is creepy, the fact that they seem magical, uh, and the fact that they seem to appear at night, and the fact that if you've experienced that, you feel intense frustration because nobody else will believe you, that to me all strikes as child abuse, whether it's sibling or parent or other, I don't know. Uh, But that's where I would look first, which is not to say that there's any kind of truth behind that, but that's just the first place that I would look uh, for that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. If somebody would like to share an episode of Childhood? Uh, I'm am happy to hear. Hi, Steph. Can you hear me? I sure
3: can. Um. Uh, this is, this has been boring, bothering me a couple of days since my mother started calling me, and yesterday I crashed my car. Um. I crashed into another car. It wasn't a big deal, but and, and thinking, and I haven't gotten this. Uh, to a therapist yet. I have to uh, meet my therapist next, next week. But I remembered something that happened to me about the time I was learning to speak. Uh, I think I was three or two years old. Um, my mother and an uncle of mine were trying to feed me some fruit, a mango. I had never eaten it before. And they were pushing it into my mouth my mother was holding my hands i didn't want to eat it i heard you on a on a podcast say that after 2 years old the kids they they won't try new stuff um i'm not sure if if
0: if that that's right or can you sorry do you mean new food yeah new food they i don't recall the... saying that but i don't think that's essential to your story so can you continue well okay um the thing is I didn't want to
3: taste it. I I didn't want it. And they were pushing it into my mouth and it was it was hurting me. And my uncle was yelling at me and he he was my my sister's youngest brother. And I don't know why he had such control over her, but he was the one making her uh, help help her having me eat the fruit. And um, they pushed and they hurt and they kicked me around for, for it and after a while sorry I, what do you mean I, I, by
0: sorry what do you mean by kicked you around
3: slapped me on the on the on the hands and on the face because I didn't want to eat fruit back then I only wanted milk and, and things like that I guess it's because I learned to eat that uh, younger uh, as I was younger and wouldn't accept new food I think I guess I don't know
0: well, it it, um, it actually, it, it doesn't matter why you didn't want the vegetable, the fruit, right? It doesn't matter why. You you could have just been in a bad mood. You could have, I mean, it doesn't matter why you didn't, well, you might have seen a fly on it earlier. I mean, the, it doesn't matter why you didn't want the fruit. I mean, what matters is that you were attacked for not wanting to eat the fruit, right?
3: Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. Um, This is really horrible. This is really, really horrible. I mean, up until now... I would see something like that and I would really get angry but what comes next is is the big thing.
0: Uh, sorry, uh, you mean when you, you would see something like that as an adult like you would see parents trying to force their kids to eat something?
3: Yeah, it would be horrible but the 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 thing that hit me that that, that got to me yesterday is what happened next about a week or a month, I don't remember how how long after the episode. But this uncle of mine He brought a cow's head to the to the house, a boiled cow's head. Everybody would step away from that. It was a gross, horrible thing that he brought, and he started eating that in 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 the house. We lived in a hut back then. It was really uh, we were a really poor uh, family, and and a bunch of people lived together in a a house, and mostly women, old aunts of mine. And he brought this thing into the house, and everybody got scared and disgusted by it. And he went for me. And I got really, really, really scared for that. And And I thought he was going to do the same thing to me. And I'm not sure Sorry, what, what happened. Sorry, what do you
0: mean he would do the same thing to you?
3: He would make me the, 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 cow, the cow's head. He would feed it to me, forcefully. Right. I thought he was going to do that. I don't quite understand what happened, but I flipped i became somebody else i it's like i was siding with him and making fun of, of my aunts and my grandmother and my mother for not eating the cow and i ate the and i ate the, the cow's head with him and it's like i was somebody else i was like him that day i it, like a monster I thought, as bad as he was i don't i don't know if you understand what i'm trying to say i think i do go on and I, I, now I believe it's, it was an escape, but it was a way for me to survive the attack. I was, I didn't want the attack to happen again. But through the years, I think it, it has happened to me in situations. I would flip like that again. And yesterday I was listening to, to a, a rap radio song from, from a rapper. I don't know. And I, I, wasn't paying attention to my driving, and I crashed into a car. The whole week I've been thinking about that episode. I didn't remember why. I, I was trying to understand what what went on. And after I crashed, boom, it it got to me that cow's head thing, and and it's been on my head uh, ever since. And I'm I'm just dying to get it into to my therapy and talk about it. And I thought about sharing it with you.
0: Right, right. Why do you think you crashed the car?
3: I think I have a couple of values that I'm not living, and I think I've got a couple of things
0: confused, but I'm not sure. Look, this is around the philosophy of accidents, and there are three general philosophies of accidents. One is that nothing is an accident. In other words, God plans everything and there are no accidents in life. Everything's fated, everything's determined, and everything happens for a reason, which I think is complete nonsense. The other is that accidents have no relationship to psychology, that everything is completely accidental. Like if you crash a car, it's never because of anything else. Uh, and I don't believe that. And I think that a more balanced view is to say that it's not always the case that when you have an accident... That it has a psychological cause. In my, this is all just my opinion, right? It is, but it's it's a damn important thing to explore, nonetheless. Because if it does have a, a psychological cause, then you better figure it out before whatever is happening escalates. And I remember reading in Jung many many years ago, gosh, twenty years ago almost, that Jung was uh, had a, had a friend who was um, a mountaineer. And his friend, I think it was a friend or a patient, and and the patient said to Jung, I keep dreaming that I'm climbing this mountain and I'm climbing this mountain and I'm climbing this mountain until I climb straight into the sky and vanish. And Jung said, "You, you better figure out what is going on with you because you're going to do something very stupid and very dangerous when you're mountaineering. You have a death wish at the moment. And Jung writes that, sure enough, within a month uh, he had uh, taken a plunge from a mountaintop and died. Now, is it apocryphal? Is it a real story? I, I don't know, but but it stuck with me because I have ex- I have found within my own life, and I and I can't speak to any objective or rational principles here, and certainly no professional opinion. But I found in my life that the number of accidents that are purely accidental are very small. Some of them are. Some of them are like I tripped recently, and I. I cut my thumb uh, on, on some plates when I tripped on, on the dishwasher. Um, the dishwasher lid was open. That was an accident. I was in a happy mood, and it was just, you know, it's, I just it's, you know, it, was a, it was out further than I thought. That was, that was no big deal. But there have been times where I have uh, been involved in accidents where I'm quite sure. Like once when I was driving to my therapist, uh, when I had something very big to talk about, um, I was driving out of the parking lot, and I took a turn, a turn which I had literally done, 500 times before, I took a turn, and uh, I took it too sharply, and I scraped the side of my relatively new car, um, the the Volvo, actually, the one that's in all the videos from early on. I scraped the side of my car against a pole. And was it related to the fact that I was going to go and see my therapist, and I was distracted by all of that? I believe that it was, because it certainly never happened again, uh, and uh, I've never been uh, in a car crash uh, and so I think it's really, and they say this, of course, don't drive when you're upset, don't drive when you're distracted, don't drive when you've got a lot going on. And I think that's, that's very important. So I think that it's very important to, if you, A, don't drive if you can avoid it until you get a chance to talk about this with your therapist and work it out. That would be my first suggestion. B, if you do drive, you have to pay extra careful attention to, to what is going on. Um, And the reason that I asked that is that the two things that you talked about are acts of self-destruction. And by that, I don't mean, of course, that you have some self-destructive streak. But what I mean is that the act of eating a cow's head because you're terrified that you might be asked to eat a cow's head is an act of self-destruction. And I'm not saying it was an irrational act because, in a sense, it's like I would rather pull the trigger on my true self than have you shoot it. It, it, it's how we retain a sense of control in these situations. So I would say that uh, that is an act of self destruction, and uh, of course, uh, being in an, a, a car accident is an act of self destruction. The two may, of course, be completely unrelated, but I would be very careful about uh, in endangered situations while you're working through this stuff. If that makes any sense.
3: Uh, yes, it does. It does. It does. Um, maybe some, something else I can share and ask, um, my, my brother, he's, um, his birthday is next week, next weekend. And I asked him to move in with me whenever he wanted, he's going to be 18 and my mother's been calling me since she hasn't called for, for about a year or maybe two years she started calling me and I've been avoiding her calls and and
0: I, I'm going through a lot right now. That may be it. I'm sorry, unless you just dropped, I didn't get a question there, but I'm certainly happy to keep listening.
3: Um, I'm going through a lot. I see. I, I want my brother to come live with me. I think that's the house I grew up in. I know it's horrible. It's, it's terrible and I want him out of there but you see my my family is not the same with him that it was with me and I'm not sure and I don't I don't know if it's if it'll be better for him to come, to come with me but I extended the 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 invitation and uh, maybe you can help me get some certainty certainty on, on what I should do and and how how I should move on with this.
0: Well, I, I can tell you for sure that I can't give you any certainty about that, and I don't think anyone else can. I might be able to ask some questions that might help give you some certainty, but I, I don't think anyone can can give you that. So, it's your concern that your uh, your brother is not in a healthy environment with your family. He might be in a more healthy environment living with you, but uh, you're, you're, you're sort of ambivalent about that. Is that right?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, I know he's going to be better off living with me, but He's got a condition, and and he's been. He grew up with them, and they they haven't been the same parents with him than they were with me. Uh, They they take better care of him than they did of me, a lot. But what does he want to do? I'm sorry.
0: What does he want to do?
3: He says he's gonna come by from time to time and spend some time with me, and he doesn't know what to do. And but I know my my father is very influential in him, and very manipulative and i don't i don't know he he gets it straight i don't know he sees them for 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 what they are
0: right no listen that's a that's a hell of a situation and look i obviously don't know any details and uh if it's okay i i'm gonna bypass the details because i don't think the details are going to help in terms of the principle of of helping and i think what you're asking is 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 a very powerful question so let me let me spend a minute or two with some thoughts and then you can tell me if I've completely swung and missed the ball that you're sort of pitching. The, the, the question is t- to what degree can, can we help other people when, when in a, when we know better, when we know better, let's say, let, let's say that you are in a position that, that you know better than your brother. I mean, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but, but of course I think you probably are if you've, if you go into therapy and you're studying self-knowledge and philosophy and so on, I would assume that at least at some level you're in a, better position to see and to know of course right if you go to uh, nutritional school then you're in a better position than people who've never gone to nutritional school or read anything about nutrition to figure out what you should eat i mean that's that's sort of a a, a given so let's say that you're in a better position or you're in a position to help your brother and you know better in many ways what is best for him at, at this moment unfortunately that doesn't matter Right, I mean, if if that mattered, there'd be no such thing as alcoholism, right? Because everyone around the alcoholic says you shouldn't drink. Everybody around the smoker says you shouldn't smoke. Everyone around the drug addict says you shouldn't do drugs. Everyone around the sex addict says Tiger Woods get off my girlfriend, whatever. Right. So the the amount of good advice that remains unheeded in this world is I genuinely and genuinely believe is what powers the sun itself, right? Good advice that is unheeded is the, uh, the oceanic currents of uh, powering human society or unpowering human society. So the fact that you know better than someone how he should live his life or the choices that he should make means uh, almost nothing. Because it doesn't matter what you know. It matters what he will accept. And telling someone something doesn't really mean much. Yeah, Otherwise, you know, therapy, right? Therapy would be two sessions, right? Tell me your problems. Here's a list of what you should do. Go do it. But as we all know, uh, who've been in therapy, um, and even those who avoid therapy know it too, because they avoid it for a reason. Uh, They know. uh, We know that to be helped is a very time-consuming and difficult and involved process, and that's when we're paying to go to therapy and investing time and money into it, right? I mean, the relapse rate for people from the advice that they receive is about 99.9 infinity percent. So even when we're highly motivated to change and highly motivated to grow and paying thousands of dollars and putting hundreds of hours into our, our therapy, it still takes years, right? I mean, is that, is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, it is. So,
0: I have a few rules of thumb, uh, which may be helpful to you. Maybe they're not, but... I try not to be more invested in someone's change than he or she is himself or herself. But just use the masculine because it's your brother. I try not to be invested in anybody's growth or change or enlightenment. I try not to be more invested than he is himself. And so if I'm talking to someone, and this happens sometimes, I had a whole bunch of conversations where people say, oh, I really want to talk to you. And then they just don't talk to me during the conversation. So I'm like, okay, so there's nothing for us to talk about, and we stop talking, and there's no podcast. Because I'm not going to, um, you know, if somebody wants to ride a bike, I'll show them how to ride a bike. But I'm not going to run beside them and move their legs and move their arms. And, you know, like I'm not going to be more invested in someone's commitment than that person is themselves. I just, it's it's crazy. So if your brother is heavily invested in, in change and growth and knowledge... I think fantastic. Be there as a resource. But you can only ever help people as a resource. You cannot help people by telling them what to do. You cannot help people by taking over their lives. Because what that does is it disempowers them. right? It makes them feel like they can't make a good decision without you. It makes them feel like they're incompetent. The important thing is not that you're right, but that your brother is motivated to pursue a lifelong process of self-knowledge and growth and learning and intimacy and empathy and virtue and all of the good things that we talk about here, right?
3: What do you think? Oh, I'm thinking how angry I am. Um, my parents are uh, throwing so much dirt to cover what they've done and, and to to create this, um, characters that they're playing from a brother and he can't see and And I know he's not happy there, but he feels like he has to be there cause
0: they take care of him. Well, wait a sec. How do you know that your brother can't see it? Cause it's there. Well, yeah. I understand that it's there, but how do you know that he can't see it? Like you mean that he's, incapable of seeing it that he's completely blind that he doesn't have the intelligence to process what is going on around him
3: well he sees who, the, who they he sees who they are he sees that they they're playing characters and they're they're not honest and they're not themselves but he doesn't see he cannot see he wasn't there he cannot see who they were who, who they are hiding
0: behind the, the characters well, what what uh, what is the let me be skeptical right so i'm sure you're right but what is the evidence that you have that he can't see because can't see is a very powerful statement and i try to be annoyingly precise in this area can't see right so someone is colorblind they can't see differences in colors that are the same shade they can't right that that's a physical impossibility somebody who's legally blind cannot see a plane flying overhead they can hear it but they can't see it right they can't and the bird flying over way overhead they don't even know it's there right unless they have sonar (laughs) whatever. so when you say he can't see it that is a very powerful statement that it is impossible for him he lacks an organ that you possess to perceive these things right
3: Well, let's put it like like this um you know that we we there are things that our unconscious can block, so we can, um, stay alive, right? Oh, of course. So he, he has this condition. He's he has diabetes, high diabetics, and and I think he blocks out a bunch of things because he feels that my parents are what keeps him alive, and I think they play that. They play that for him. They play that role, and they they. He's very, um, uh, he doesn't follow, uh, precisely the, the, the rigors of, of his treatment. He doesn't inject himself the, the insulin at the right time. He, they, they have to constantly remind him. And they make him, I, I think they make him dumb. So he has to rely on them for, for, for staying alive so they, so that he doesn't go away from them, you know?
0: Why does your brother have diabetes? I'm sorry? Why does your brother Why? have diabetes? I mean, because I don't know. There are two kinds as far as I know, right? What do I know? But there's the kind that you get from genetics, and there's the kind that you get from your lifestyle, right?
3: Um, He got it when he was eight or nine, and back then... They say it's genetic, uh, and they say it's a virus in the milk, and they say a bunch of things. But,
0: okay, so it's genetic. I was just just curious about that. All right, so he's got this condition, and he's had it for 10 years, and you say he's not doing his health regimen, right?
3: I'm not sure it's genetic. i We had very rough times back then in the in the family, and he missed a lot of sleep back then, and i I personally I think that was the cause: emotional stress.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I don't know the science behind that. Um but I mean as far as I know, I mean overweight inactivity, um but I think at that age it would have to be pretty significant. I mean and it's just curious, right? But you're saying that now ten years after he got the illness he is um not following his um his regimen, right? His like insulin and exercise and diet, right?
3: Well he exercises and and, and, and but he sometimes eats sugar and he shouldn't candies and he shouldn't and sometimes he forgets to, to inject and he, he spends the night in the hospital and he's like a, a very, he's like a baby and he's 18, you know, cause they, they, they've made him that way. He's very immature when he's at home. It's not that way when he's with me, he, but when he get, he, he, when he gets back, it's a kid all over again.
0: Right. Right. And I mean, of course the stakes are very high right i mean he could lose circulation to his foot and he could lose circulation to his eyes and you know so he could i mean there's some significant health risks associated with the non-management of diabetes so it's it's pretty high stakes poker right yeah life and death life and death right oh man that is that is a tough 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 situation that is a tough, tough, tough situation.
3: Um, I, I, I've, I've gotten him. I've gotten him here. He, I've gotten to him to meet my friends. We talk. I am open and honest with him. He avoids the topic of my parents when he's with me, but he sees the the, the methodology, the 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 willingness to self knowledge. You know, you understand?
0: Yeah, no, of course, yeah, yeah. He, now sorry he's sorry is uh, let me let me just ask you this though is is he is he committed to like Does he, is he aware that it's a problem how he's managing his health or not managing his health like does he say that is a problem right
3: um yeah but it's something like a bad habit that has the kid you know he tr- he downplays it
0: yeah like oh it's no big deal so i forgot everyone forgets stuff right yeah, like that. Like it's a set of keys, not insulin, right? Yeah. All right. Um, and has this always been the case for him since he was a kid?
3: Oh, at the beginning, it was my my family who took care of him. The doctors told them they shouldn't that they, they, they should um, induce uh, help him become self um, managed, and they did to a degree. And after that, I, whenever I started having problems with my family, I I think now that I think of it, I I think he, goes, he expresses it that way. I think.
0: And uh, is he is he the youngest sibling? Yes, yes. And uh, is it fair to say that your parents' marriage is not terribly close?
3: They split about when, right when I defood. The they split and lived in separate houses now they're back together, and they have my my brother with them. They've been together for for a couple of months right. right
0: well, look as you know i'm I'm in no way competent to make any to say anything that's factual about this situation. All I can do is share to you some of my my thoughts right which which don't mean anything It's just some guy talking on the internet right so i I will tell you what I think and then you can tell me if it's at all useful to you. All right? Okay. It has been my experience that people act out and cause other people to feel that which they cannot feel themselves. So if your brother feels stressed and angry and frustrated and helpless, but he cannot process or will not process those feelings, then the likelihood is that he is going to act in a way that is going to make those around him feel what he cannot or will not feel, but which is actually occurring for him. So if he feels angry, frustrated, helpless, paralyzed, self-destructive, then he is going to act in such a way that everyone else around him is going to experience the feelings he won't process. And so he's going to act in a way that is going to make you feel stressed and helpless and frustrated and all of that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I do that a lot. I mean, we all do. This is I think it's a human condition. This is why self-knowledge is so important, so we don't have other people hold the hot rocks of our deepest feelings, because it just burns them when it's us who have to deal with it. So that's one aspect. So forget about where your brother lives. That doesn't matter. What matters is that he is able to deal with his feelings, if this theory is even applicable, which you can find out through talking to him, that he can deal with his feelings and stop provoking those feelings in other people. Right? We all know about passive aggression, right? So passive aggression is when somebody is angry, can't express it, and what they do is they'll do things that are annoying to other people until other people lose their temper. Right? That's that's natural uh, for people who don't have self-knowledge. When things get to this level of intensity where somebody's health is genuinely at risk. It could be, at least this is the first place that I would look, just as an idiot amateur, this is the first place that I would look. I would say, what part of my brother feels like he's dying to the point where he has to risk death to communicate that to others? That's the first place that I would look. The second place that I would look, and this would be more just for your own knowledge, because I don't imagine that you could have anything to, to do anything to change this, is it also it has also been my observation and experience that marriages in trouble will hang on to the children right so parents whose marriage is in trouble very often will not want the youngest child to leave home and it's not just marriages in moms who are lonely dads who are lonely and needy they will hang on to their kids because kids are prefabricated company, right? Yeah, that's it's, what's going on. You don't have on. to earn your relationship with your kids, right? I mean, they is—they're born. You're there. You spend years together. It's not because you love each other. I mean, hopefully you do, but if you don't, you still have to hang out together. It's it's socialized relationships, right? It's not free. It's not voluntary. And so that- if. Sometimes, sometimes parents will hang on, particularly to the youngest kid, rather than deal with loneliness or alienation that they may be experiencing as adults. It gives them something else to focus on. And we all know, this is a pretty well-observed fact, that when children see their parents fighting, often the children will cause a problem to stop the parents from fighting. To have the parents redirect their attention to the transgressions of the kid. Right. If you ever want to make a kid uh, hurt himself, hurt some other kid, uh, drop something, break something, just start fighting with your spouse in front of them, and it's just a matter of time. So it could be that this is an extreme form of that. Again, these, all just, you know, these are things to talk out with your brother, uh, and these are things to talk out with your therapist. But these are the, the things that, that, if I were in your shoes, I would approach the problem from these angles and find out if there was anything to it.
3: Yeah, you're right. Um... While you were thinking, I was imagining my mother cooking and, and doing all these things and trying to entice him and, and and thinking that it's a battle for him. And I can imagine my father also pulling all the tricks he could to to knowing that. I don't know if my brother did tell them, but he probably did. And he, he has probably brought it up. I don't know. Because that's why my mother is calling me. Um, and I can imagine a battle being fought over there, trying to win him over. And and it for me it's like it's like a nightmare. I, imagining him between those monsters, I I see them as monsters. Ah oh, man, and, I, and he can't see uh, that thing, and it, it breaks my heart, and it, it makes me nervous, it makes me
0: anxious. Right, and the important thing, see, the important thing is not that you feel nervous and anxious. I mean, that's important for you, right? The important thing is not that you feel nervous and anxious. The important thing is that he begins to feel nervous and anxious. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, sure. Sure. And and whenever we try to take over other people's decision-making process and say, you've got to get out, you've got to do this, you've got to do the other. What we're saying to them is that they can't make the decision for themselves, and we, we're taking over the conclusion. The important thing is not the conclusion. The important thing is the process. Because let's say your brother listens to you, and he moves out, and he dutifully moves into your house and whatever. He hasn't learned anything. He hasn't changed. He hasn't grown. He's just done what you want him to do without comprehension. We might as well just whisper the answer to a math problem into kids' ears and think they've learned something. All they've learned is how to write down the numbers that we've told them to write down. They haven't learned how to do the math. And uh, I think that, and I completely hope I I, I sympathize, and oh, my heart goes out to you. What a difficult, difficult, horrible situation. And there could be 60 million different ways of trying to deal with it. I'm only sharing with you the way that I would approach it. But um, uh, the important thing... Is that your brother? Begin to feel uh, begins to feel the things that he obviously is not feeling. Somebody who's not managing his or her own health is not making sensible, irrational decisions, and is in fact endangering himself. And he needs to feel whatever is blocking him from acting in a rational and self protective manner. He needs to feel that, and whatever you can do to help him to feel that, which is about focusing on him not focusing on your frustrations or what you think he should do. It's focusing on him, 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 him because you don't want to be someone who tells him what to do like your parents. Someone who says, you have to do this, you need to do that, you need to take your medication, you need to move out, you need to see this about the family, you need... No. That, I guarantee, I don't know what to do but I'm telling you that won't work. You need to find a way to get him to take his own feelings more seriously, to be curious about what he is experiencing. And if you can do that, Everything else will flow from that, from his own self-awareness, from his own curiosity about himself. Has yeah, to care enough about himself and value himself enough. Right? It's all. I mean, I I always try to have, when I have a conversation with someone, and hopefully this is the case with you too. I always want the person. I don't always achieve it, but I always want the person to come away feeling uh, stronger. Uh, feeling uh, empowered, feeling that there's a possibility or an option or something that they can do that's different or better or more useful or more powerful or more helpful. You can't make him do anything. You can't give him a conclusion and think that he's learned anything. But you can just sit down and ask him questions. What do you think? What do you feel? When did this feeling first come to you? What is it like for you when this happens? What is it like for you when that happens? Don't tell him. Ask him. Ask him, ask him, ask him. When he becomes curious about himself, when he becomes slightly more friendly with himself, when he begins to value himself more by being curious about himself, then he will begin to save himself. But we don't dive into an icy river to save a man three days dead. Why would we? There has to be life There has to be the potential for life for people to take extreme action to save themselves. And that would be my suggestion, just to keep asking him questions. Don't tell him what to do. Just keep asking questions. You can share your own feelings, of course, but share them as your feelings, right? I feel this about the situation, but it's nothing to do with what you should or shouldn't do. I'm just sharing with you what I feel, but what do you think? What do you feel about things? If you can light that fire within him, there's nothing that he can't do. If you can't light that fire of self-regard and self-curiosity within him, I don't think there's much that anyone can do.
1: Yeah,
3: I, I agree.
0: Did you start agreeing like 15 minutes ago and I didn't need to say all that? or <laughs> <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> no,
3: you're right. Um, it, uh, you get really... I mean, I'm probably feeling... Um, what he's feeling i'm probably spe- imagining in my head what he's going through and and what horrible situation it is for him and maybe that's why i'm i'm getting so anxious
0: and, yeah and you want you want to change his situation perhaps to manage your own feelings and that's uh, i don't think that's focusing on him in the way that will light him up
3: yeah i agree you're right
0: it's about acting out
3: my my for my own comfort because I feel bad for him, it's not—it's not bad that I do that, but it's not—it's not. No,
0: it's, it's, not productive. its in fact, it's good that you feel that you want to help him and you want to care for him. I, I completely agree with you, and it's terrible to be in this situation. But but to know that I think gives you options. That that is important to know that that's what you feel. But not to—he doesn't—he should not have to change so you feel better. Nobody should have to change so someone else feels better. They should want to change for their own desire for happiness.
3: Sure. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, keep, keep us posted or at least keep me posted if you get a chance. I'd love to know uh, what happens. But yeah, just listen, listen, listen. And that's that's the best advice I can give. Thanks. Oh, well. All right, man. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, uh, I hope that uh, you drive safe, <laughs> drive safe to your uh, <laughs> drive safe to your therapist appointment.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll do that. I won't drive
0: because I'll have the car being repaired. Oh, good. uh, (laughs) Excellent. See, now you just did a little bit to make yourself safe. So much the better. (laughs) So much the better. Thanks. All right. Somebody has asked a question regarding the phenomena of making others around you feel what you are unwilling to process. How does this manifest if you don't really have other people in your life to project onto if you live alone and mostly stay at home? I don't know. I don't know. I think that um uh, I would assume that if you're alive and a human being that you have some people in the world who care for you or at least who claim to care for you. And if you don't see them then you're making them feel something by not seeing them. Right? You're making them feel rejected, uh, you're making them feel alone, you're making them feel confused, you're making them feel alienated, uh, and uh, I mean making them feel you understand it's a, just a colloquial use of the term. So I would look into that uh, as as what is what what is being communicated, what uh, is uh, is experiencing.
1: Oh, and somebody who I think
0: cured himself or herself of diabetes, though type two, I think, has also mentioned uh, it would be important for Victor to learn to manage his brother's diabetes too if the brother moves in, like a course. And I can only assume that that's true since I don't know that much about diabetes. So, uh, absolutely. Um, so there are a few other since we and please interrupt me if you have a call um, or type it into the question, but since we 're waiting for the next uh, call, uh, these are a few of the other principles that I have about um, uh, about helping people yeah don't don 't get more invested in helping people than they are in helping themselves because all you do is you try and take over their lives, make them feel less competent, less efficacious, and uh, will just end up exacerbating whatever problem uh, you 're trying to help them solve to begin with. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is um, don't shield people from consequences. Don't shield people from the consequences of their actions. I think that's really, really important. And that can be one of the hardest things to do, right? So if somebody's doing something stupid and, you know, they they, they show up to work drunk, they get fired, they have no money, it's like, I'm not going to lend you money. I'm sorry, but, you know, uh, I offered to help beforehand. You didn't want the help. You said you were going to do this. You didn't. You've got negative consequences. You know, if you're not going to learn through reason, you have to learn through experience. I mean, the reason we focus on reason is that it helps us avoid the pain of having to learn through, through experience. But um, do, not, uh, do not shield people from the consequences of their actions. Uh, that, I think, is very, very important. Adults, I'm talking children, you must continually shield from the consequences of their actions. And I think that is, uh, uh, that is very fine and that is very healthy. So I think that's, uh, I think that's important. Um, it, people change. I mean, this is my mm-hmm. thoughts and experience. Pe- people change when they run out of options. When, when shit just doesn't work so badly in their life that they just change. And this is true for me as well certainly was true for me. I didn't, I didn't go to therapy because I had a scintillating vision of how wonderful my life was going to be in the future. I went to therapy because I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what the problem was. Now, it was through a huge amount of work in therapy that I began to uh, emerge into that. Um, but um, uh, people change when the stuff that they do doesn't work. And if you help the stuff that they do continue to work when it shouldn't, all you're doing is delaying their growth for your sake of your own anxiety and look it can be very tough and it can be very horrible to watch people who are suffering as a result of their own choices but um there's no other way uh, if they're not going to listen to reason you have to let them learn from experience uh, or accept that you're you know enabling right that you're simply continuing the pattern right so don't bail them out uh don't you know don't do this don't do that and uh I think that is um, that's been something else that's been have been very helpful. Uh, I also try to uh, avoid getting into situations where people will give me their problems to solve. Right, that's you know that's that's tempting, right? You you can sound, I guess, all kinds of smart, and and people can go, hey, thanks, or whatever, right? But I feel very strongly that if people have not gotten from a conversation with me a principle that they can apply to other things then it has not been a successful conversation. I mean, it just hasn't been. Again, that's like, what's the answer to to, to three times three? It's nine. Well, what if you taught someone? Well, a, a series of magical statements that have no correlation. You say this, someone says nine, it's quote correct. So I always try in my conversations to give people a principle rather than a solution, to give people a methodology rather than do this, do that. And I think that is, is very, very important. Uh, principles in power. Answers disembowel. <laughs> okay, that might be too strong a way of putting it. Yeah, disempower. I mean, you, y- you strengthen people's capacity to live rationally and happily if you give them a principle, which they can use to solve one of many problems. But if you give them answers, then, all you're saying is that you have to come to me for answers, and you can't trust yourself, and there's no way to reproduce what we're doing here without me. Uh, it is a kind of self-important grandiosity, which we all have, and we all want to be the smart person who says, do this, do that, right? But I try to, and I, I'm not always successful, but I really strive to not tell people what to do. I mean, first of all, it's a ridiculous thing, because I can't tell people what to do. I can talk into a microphone on the Internet, and I can't tell anyone what to do. That's, uh, I mean, I can't even tell myself what to do. You know, half of my day is don't fart, don't fart, right? And suddenly I'm jetting along like the Jetsons, right? So I think it's really important to just, you can't, I mean, you can pretend that you can tell what people what to do, but you can't. You can't tell people what to do. Uh, so I don't even try. I think that you can appeal to their reason, but um, I don't think that you can, uh, uh, you, can't, you can't tell them. It's a fantasy, right? And, and if, they, if anyone says, tell me what to do, it's a trap, what they're doing is they're setting you up to take the blame when it doesn't work, right so don't don't even fall into that trap you know should i should I take this job no way I'm not telling you that even if I have a strong opinion right because if you take the job and it doesn't work out yeah, you you're the one you told me why you know or whatever should I leave this girl or whatever right so all right um If someone has asked, could a death wish be something that somebody else feels about you, wanting you to die, like a parent or someone strongly embedded within you? I am not an expert on death wish, though it is a pretty good song by the police. Yeah, DeMauze makes an argument that it is murderousness on the part of a parent that creates the death wish in the child. He's no psychologist, but the man has some good references and he's well worth reading. So, um, yeah, no child is born with a death wish. No human being is born with a death wish. Uh, and it's not just Demas, but lots of people have theorized this. It's actually in the Sopranos that the mom of Tony Soprano is a just a murderous "see you next Tuesday" kind of woman, and um, that is uh, uh, that that's fairly well depicted uh, in in that sort of literature. That it is the murderousness, often of the mom, uh, that it results in a death wish. But uh, I'll just touch on this briefly. But you might want to listen to a podcast that I just pushed out and i'm sorry that i haven't been listening to these on the board i will do this after the show a podcast that i just pushed out called what was it called oh it was called something intelligent oh that's right it was called the war and um it was uh, it's about when you have opposite moral principles from people it's win lose and it is a battle to the death and we can't help but be invested in the other person fa- other person's failure so I would say that when you are around people that you have opposing moral principles: relativism versus absolutism, statism versus voluntarism, um, the the virtue of hitting your children versus the vice of hitting your children, the the universal ban on violence or the selective moral approval of violence. These are all opposing. Moral principles, honesty versus, quote, politeness. And boy, if there's one word I would scrub from our language, it would be politeness. I loathe that word. Politeness and appropriateness. It's just a way of keeping ugly secrets from uh, about ugly people quiet so they look better. But um, uh, I would say that it um, uh, it is uh, it's so important to be aware of when you have opposing moral principles to those around you that you're alert and aware to the fact that it is a grim fucking battle to the death whether you like it or not. It is a win-lose, and uh, they want you to fail. And it's not like you want them to fail, but if they succeed, you're going to fail. And so it is a win-lose. And uh, I think that's really uh, really important to understand. I think Death Wish comes out of that, an extreme form of that as well. All right, we do have time for another call or typed questions in the chat room if... Uh, Steph, what is your point
1: in dealing, uh, point of view in dealing with people with mental disorders? Uh, my mom has has bipolar.
0: Well, I I don't know, uh, I don't know. Um, mental disorders is something that is a very very tricky term. It's a very tricky term because it is still. It is still very much up in the air where the mental disorders are genetic or chosen. Right? I mean, and you all heard this recently. Uh, it was when I was reading about psychology when I was younger, it was simply gospel that schizophrenia and psychosis do not respond to talk therapy. They couldn't find a biological cause, but it was considered that it was, had nothing to do with how you thought. It had nothing to do with evasion or abuse or history. It's just whammo, blammo, too bad, 18, you get schizophrenia, your life is screwed. Now, there is a success rate of upwards of 80% for talk therapy in schizophrenia and certain forms of psychosis. Talk therapy. It's like chatting a cancer out of your body, for Christ's sake. It, it, it's deranged. So, it is a it is a tough thing to talk about mental disorders. I I I mean I can't give anybody any advice on on how to deal with mental disorders um you know my mother certainly has her fair share if not her fair share for a small mesopotamian nation but um uh, I just I couldn't I couldn't do it I couldn't do it there's something there's something about mental disorders that to me is infinitely harder to deal with than a physical disorder um so uh it depends It depends. Look, something like dementia, which is a biological basis, I mean, that's just tragic. I mean, what hit Ronald Reagan later, or perhaps even during his pregnancy, his presidency, uh, that is just genuinely tragic and and horrible stuff. And, you know, I think if you love the person, then you you care for them out of the memory and you grieve. And, I mean, that's just wretched, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, Alzheimer's in particular, and other forms of degenerative uh, brain disorders. I think that's that's just heinous. Um, I, I... I lean towards, with no, with little scientific, not no, but little scientific uh, backup, I lean towards that uh, mental illness, particularly those accumulate later in life, that mental illness arise out of a misuse of the brain. And we all understand this when it comes to things like uh, certain forms of arthritis, right? If you're a football player, your knees are shot, usually by the time you're 30, right? And may need to be replaced. I think Tom Wolfe wrote about that in um, A Man in Full. But, uh so we all understand that a misuse or an overuse of a particular joint or or muscle can very easily cause significant chronic problems later on, like arthritis or you know, whatever, right? and I believe that we can enormously misuse the brain and avoidance is one of the most fundamental misuses of the brain right so you get a thought or you get an impulse and you immediately say to yourself that's wrong that's bad i can't think that i won't think that i won't think i won't feel that i can't feel that and you push it around you i believe that that harms your brain uh, in the same way that lifting a truck will harm your back you you know it's a repetitive strain injury it is it is a repetitive strain injury of the brain and that has physical effects, and I believe that those physical effects can be mapped uh, with some of the new uh, MRIs that are out there. So I think that um, uh, you, can, you can damage your brain, and that brain damage can become permanent if you continually use your brain in the exact opposite way which it was intended, the brain—the brain is a unifying organism, uh, organ, right? It, it unifies it, synthesizes it, it lines everything up, it rationalizes it, conceptualizes it, finds patterns, it finds consistencies, it finds logic, it finds everything that that needs to line up. It tries to line up continually. And if you order your brain to split, to split, and to hold irreconcilable and opposite ideas, if you do that, 1984, double, triple, quadruple. 1940, 1940, 20, if you triple think your brain into holding all of these contradictory ideas, then you're doing the exact opposite of what the brain is intended to do, which is to to rationalize and to synthesize and to conceptualize information into holes. So if you split it up and you say, well, abuse is bad, but my parents hitting me was for my own good. Well, which the fuck is it, right? I mean, which is it? Uh, violence is bad, but government violence is good, Right? Uh hitmen are bad, but soldiers are heroes. Like all the shit that we're supposed to swallow that just makes our brain fart sideways into our own brain uh, is really bad for us. It's really, really bad for us. And in the future, they'll wonder how we got through the damn day uh, putting one foot in front of the other when we held so many contradictory thoughts in our head. Or how about my God is real. Your God is mythological. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's ridiculous, right? I'm a virtue. I'm virtuous because I'm Christian because I happen to be born to Christian parents. Well, then you're not virtuous, because it was just a coincidence. I mean, if you'd been born to Hindu parents, you'd be a freaking Hindu. Hindu. So the amount of nonsense and contradictory, dangerous, brain-melting crap that we hold in our heads has a deleterious and negative effect. Uh, one idea good and one idea bad is like mixing nails into your cheesecake and having a good meal, thinking, well, there's some cheesecake in there, so I should be fine. It's not. Uh, it's not fine so i um i don't know the degree to which and it may never be discovered in our lifetime maybe yours probably not mine i don't know the degree to which bad thinking produces brain dysfunction later in life but um i think it's uh, i think it's considerable so uh, i move more towards uh if you have a brain disorder my first you know my first thing is to look at the history of thinking was there a time when the person was less crazy And what are the ideas that they held at that time? And if the ideas they held at that time were uh, immature and uh, emotionally repressive and contradictory, or if they were hurtful or harmful to other people, particularly children, uh, I believe that a bad conscience is a snake that eats the soul whole and shits out nothing but discontent and rage and frustration. And every ghastly, negative, horrible, entrapped, enslaved, hellish emotion that we can consider... So I think that uh, some mental disorders are also merely the Macbeth effect of a bad conscience and uh, the lack of sleep that that engenders, the defensiveness, the hostility, the split with the self, the lack of peace of mind. The brain is a muscle. You don't want to wear it out with contradictions. Your muscle can do a hell of a lot. Your bicep can lift a lot of weight. Your tricep can push a lot of weight. But if you try to move them both at the same time, you are going to fuck up your arm. And it's the same thing. is true of the brain. You can do some great things. You can do the opposite things. You just don't want to do them both at the same time. With split perspectives and my ecosystem wars, that is going to mess up your brain. And that's my um, that's my perspective. Uh, someone has asked um, a couple of times, "What is preferable, bad parents or no parents?" I I can I can answer that. I mean, that's such a um, a wide range of things. I can tell you that from my own personal experience. Um, uh, living without a parent from the age of fifteen onwards was so vastly preferable that I wept with relief the day that she was gone. I mean, that's and and never looked back. Uh, and when she came back to town, dreaded it. So I can tell you that for myself, no parents was infinitely better than that. Uh, did I live alone at fifteen? No, I did not. Uh, I have an elder brother, and we also. It took in some roommates from some other troubled families, and we lived four or five of us in a two-bedroom apartment. And uh, we all had uh, jobs, or uh, uh, some some guys had some savings, and um, we uh, we lived we lived that way. And uh, it was uh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Yeah, and I was working I was working three jobs. Yeah, I was working three jobs at the time. I worked in a daycare. I worked cleaning offices and i worked uh as a waiter on the weekends uh, so it was a um it was a challenge we didn't do anything like child emancipation or i don't think we even knew what that was uh, i think that's um that's tough but uh no i i mean it was fantastic i never looked back and i i spent a short amount of time living with my mom when i was 27 uh a couple of months and uh and that was it uh, so no since i was 15 uh i was uh Self-sufficient, um, and uh, and look, I <laughs> I don't recommend that. I really don't. If you've got any other possibilities, but uh, we didn't, uh, and so it was certainly the better solution for us. And uh, um, so anyway, I just sort of wanted to, to mention that. And I you know, uh, to be honest, I mean, this is uh, while we're waiting for another question. That is, um, I mean, that taught me a lot about society, right? I mean, everybody knew that we were the House of Lost Boys, but nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. And this is, of course, true. I mean, this wasn't the first time I'd lived alone when my, when my mother was institutionalized. When I was um, 13, I think, 12 or 13, my mother was institutionalized for quite some time. And we just worked jobs and struggled and everybody knew. I mean, but nobody did anything. And this is, of course, I mean, this is why to me the welfare state is just such nonsense. I mean, people don't actually act to help children in dire distress within their own community when dozens or hundreds of people know, including the professionals who are treating my mom, who knows she has kids, who knows there's no extended family because they do a history. So the idea that society gives a shit about the poor is just, it's ludicrous to me when you've actually been in the situation of leaving things. And I was in that situation in two or three different countries over the course of 18 or 20 years, and not one person came forward for help. Uh, you just know that it's all just a bunch of pious, self-serving bullshit that people say that they care about the poor or care about children. I think that's just nonsense. Anyway. Well, thank you. I I really do appreciate your sympathy. I I do. It means a lot to me that you guys care. And it uh, it was a very strange time. It was a very strange time. It was a time of enormous relief to have a house of peace. And I tell you, I mean, if I hadn't done that, I can almost guarantee you, I never would have gotten into university. There was no chance of doing homework in my house. There was so much chaos and violence and destructiveness and ugliness. there was no chance to do homework there. I mean, it was just get home, get some food, try and survive, try and get out and go somewhere. and you just you couldn't think your brain uh, and of course, I know the biological reasons for this now, so much, so many years later. you can't think when you're in that kind of environment. Your brain is full of random bees and brownie and static. Uh, You just can't think. And so if I hadn't had, sorry, yeah, it's fight or flight. You just continually, amygdala storms just taking over your brain the whole time. And um, so if I hadn't had those couple of years to haul my grades up, I I never would have gotten into college. I mean, my whole life would have been different. So I really do appreciate your sympathy, but I tell you, man, I wish we could have done it earlier because, uh, oh, man, it was just, it was so sweet. You don't know the relief, you know, like, You don't know the relief that's there when you get an abuser out of your life. Oh, my God. You know what it's like? It's like you're walking down the street. I mean, the only thing I can say, you're walking down the street and you're having a good day or whatever, and a, a freaking meteor blows up the sidewalk 20 feet away from you. And you look and you go, oh, my God. Now the air tastes really sweet, and I am so happy to be alive. Well, that's what it is. Doesn't make it worthwhile, but uh, it's a sweet and beautiful thing to get that kind of uh, peace and quiet and concentration. And it was really only there that my intellectual life began. Before that, I was just a fight or flight, feed the dinosaur, field mouse, trying to trying to live through the next day.
1: Yeah, I, I had no, I had no
0: past, no future. I was uh, an animal in the terror of the moment at all times. There was nothing. To come, there was nothing in the past. It was just navigate the minefields of the moment. That's all there was. Try and survive the insanity and the danger and the violence of the moment. That's all there was. There was no self. There was no soul. There was no life. I had as about as much self-awareness as a creeping vine. So, and I appreciate, I appreciate everyone's uh, uh, sympathies. I really do. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. Uh, and uh, I'm just for me, it was... It was an absolutely necessary uh, thing to do and a uh, very positive. What kept me motivated to press forward?
1: It's a good question. Ah, I mean, it's, I always felt that I, I
0: always felt that I, I had a gift for the world. That I, I could bring something to the world. I felt that even, even way back then. I felt I felt that I could bring some beauty to the world. And I thought that was going to be through art initially, through writing, through acting, novels. I thought that I was going to bring some beauty to the world that way. But I found that the world wasn't ready to see the beauty that was there until they could see truth. There wasn't much point writing a novel about the truth if people couldn't even see the truth. And so I continued to study and learn about myself and
1: and grow. And eventually I had this
0: platform this megaphone this lighthouse to beam from and uh, that has been a completely beautiful and humbling and uh, and justifying experience to know that what i felt capable of at 6 and 16 and 26 and 36 came true later in life than i had hoped but i'm glad that it didn't happen earlier in life because i had, wasn't clear enough in my thinking earlier on in my life, and I would have spent a lot of time backtracking from positions that were
1: untenable. So, yeah,
0: there was a, a light ahead of me. I thought to myself, you know, like this, it's a terrible metaphor, but there's those anglerfish, they live deep in the ocean, and they have those, they look like bent fishing poles, with the light ahead of them, and they use it. And of course, this is a bad metaphor, because they use it to attract and eat smaller fish, so I don't mean it like that, but... What I was capable of doing, what I was capable of bringing to the world, was like this annoying, and it nagged at me all the time, this annoying light ahead of me that I kept moving, and it kept moving forward. And it was like, damn it, why don't you just leave me alone? Why don't you just leave me alone? I felt like I'd inherited Socrates' demon, or gadfly, that constantly pestered him whenever he was doing the wrong thing. I... I was constantly drawn forward by that light and that possibility. And I mistook that for the world. I thought that I had to help the world, and that wasn't true. I had to help myself. But that's okay. Uh, it took me only 20 years to figure that out, because, you know, I'm dumb.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, let's see here.
0: Oh, somebody, just, sorry, just some facts about Alzheimer's. Says, Smoking after age 65 increases your chances of developing Alzheimer's by 79%. Obesity in midlife makes you three and a half more times more likely to experience Alzheimer's. Diabetes twice as likely genetics account for only 25% of Alzheimer's cases. Chronic stress may quadruple your risk. Uh, I didn't know any of that. Uh, I'm assuming it's true. Somebody posted that, so I'm just putting that out there because we talked about Alzheimer's as a non-chosen uh, non, uh, thing, but uh, to some degree, I guess it is. yeah do you know we just uh we just i just did the math today uh, it's pretty cool four four million philosophy hits a year for through f d r four million podcasts downloaded and videos viewed and books four million four fucking million <laughs> a year i mean this is the biggest, most powerful, deepest, and richest philosophy conversation the world has ever seen, and I believe that the world's is ever likely to see because in the future there will be free domain radio in the past so it will never ever be as powerful and as exciting as riding this glorious terrifying fiery wave the first time And that's just just freaking cool. That is just, and that doesn't count the board conversations. That doesn't count the myriad romantic and friendships, um, romantic relationships and friendship relationships that have developed out of people who've met through Freedom Radio. Uh, that is um, that is just fantastic. That is just uh, it's just fantastic. And and that's taking into account the fact that I'm producing fewer, far fewer podcasts than I used to. And that will change, uh, I think, relatively soon but uh, i just wanted to point out that that's <laughs> that is some freaking cool stuff and so since the show began we're talking roughly roughly 20 million exposures to significant philosophy 20 million exposures to significant philosophy
1: no uh, it's incredible it's incredible
0: it's mind blowing I mean, hundreds of thousands per month, people dinging off philosophy shows. What a thirst for philosophies out there in the world. And we're still a relatively unknown show. Oh, I mean, that is humbling. That is fantastic. Uh, and that is that is kudos. I mean, obviously, there's some to me, right? But the kudos is, is to you, just amazing, incredible, fantastic, genius, brilliant, exciting, scary, wonderful listeners, um, you know your your participation in this if it was just me it wouldn't be half the size of that the conversations that i've had with people uh, the the honesty the vulnerability the courage that's courage man to go on a philosophy show and talk about stuff that's really deep and important for you whether it's philosophy or relationships or whatever that takes some serious stones man and by that i mean balls and ovaries <laughs> right so uh it is it is the listeners it is the technology uh and uh, uh the, the show is Ah, the show is uh, as, as great as as people's desire for greatness. Right. Freddie Mercury, eminent philosopher, um, once said that he couldn't sing any better than the enthusiasm of the crowd, and that is entirely true. I mean, if everybody was way behind what I was doing, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd just be speaking a bunch of syllables that would confuse and baffle people, but y'all are so freaking smart that you get it, you get it, you get it, and some of you get it long before I do about stuff, and that is a beautiful thing to see. So uh, you know, thank you for your interest in philosophy and what you've done to support the show and to get it out there. It's uh, magnificent. Oh yeah, um, someone had a question about a friend joining the military. Is that you? Do you want to talk? Do you want to type the question? Do you want just general thoughts? <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Hey, Steph.
4: Hi. I'm the one who uh, had the uh, topic about
1: my friend joining the military. Hello. All right.
4: At the pub, you? My camera is on. Okay. Uh, so, am I still on? I'm having some minor technical questions.
0: Oh, you sound great. I mean, I wish, I uh, wish everybody's quality was as good.
4: Okay, good. Um, so my friend is joining the military in, I guess, three days, and he he has a bachelor's degree, so he's going to be. And he's relatively fit, so he thinks he's going to make it to special ops and uh not be, you know, a foot soldier in the middle of Baghdad or whatever. And I was, he had like a, a Facebook event page where it was kind of like, come tell us what you think about me joining the military. And it's the, well, I guess what you would expect, but I was pretty upset by it that everyone's like, yeah, and stuff that's literally like, go get the bad guys. And, uh, so I had, uh, I gave him a call and I thought about an hour and a half and I was, you know, uh, like pretty much crying and like, <laughs> don't basically don't, uh, do this. Don't go to a place where you can be killed or don't go kill people. And, uh, and talking about how it's messed up that no one is basically saying that to him besides me, who, I mean, we're not even that close of friends anymore. Right. And he, he said he's gonna, well, he said he's gonna talk to me again. Um, I'm not sure what day, but like before he leaves and I, I don't have much hope that I'm gonna pierce something and. You know, I have him go, my God, I didn't think about, you know, it is killing people. Uh, and it's, I, I mean, from what I understand, and this is kind of what DeMoss talks about, but I think he's just like, I think he is just suicidal and he, he's full of rage and he wants to kill people. And I, I don't, I don't know how to talk about the underlying emotional problem to, access that i I don't know how to i don't know what to do to convince him to not join and i I don't even know if i can you know it's clearly out of my control but
0: yeah but you don't want to have missed something that you could have said right you don't want to like you don't want to be like hey five minutes after he joins oh i know exactly what to say to get him to not join right yeah yeah well um do you want to talk more do you want a couple of
1: thoughts Uh, how do you want to proceed
4: I'm not I think I've given enough uh of what's happened so far uh,
0: some some stuff thoughts are always helpful so okay um, yeah i mean i uh, people kill to displace feelings of self destruction right people kill to avoid suicide. The death has mm-hmm. to go somewhere better others right i mean you've seen the that ugh that zero Kelvin of the human soul, which is the chatter of the helicopter pilots blowing up those people in Iraq. Yeah. That is a dead, cold, soulless wreckage of a human soul that has become poison and slaughter and genocide and murder. And that is, um, that is a whole chain of people who didn't say to these people when they were children, what's happening to you is evil. That is revenge against a world that will not intervene in the abuse of children. When you have a sympathetic witness, no matter how bad it's been, you will not end up like that. And it is the refusal of the world to be a sympathetic witness to these children, whether they're children or as adults, to draw a line in the sand and say, it was wrong. It was immoral. For the world to at least begin to approach the standards that it holds up in music, in sitcoms, in popular culture about the beauty and wonder and nobility and need to protect children. The moment society begins to approach 10% of the pompous and pious lies that it tells itself about its protection of children, then the world will be a peaceful place. But that is still a long way down the road, sadly. So I just wanted to mention that people end up wanting to join the military because nobody stood up and said, what happened to you was wrong. And adult relations are voluntary. I haven't changed that since before FDR. And the refusal of society to do that produces this kind of poison in the soul where people are like so angry at having been so betrayed by the hypocrites who were supposed to protect them that they become killbots. The generation kills, swarms across the planet, and that's why every sympathetic witness that you can be to a harmed soul takes the murderousness out of the human air to some degree. And uh, that's the only thing that I believe works. Sympathetic witness. Moral certainty, moral absolutism, even moral outrage. And genuine sympathy for what they've suffered. That deactivates the kill switch in the human soul. And anybody who doesn't have the balls to do that can't be said to be even remotely interested in human peace, but rather is working for the other side. So, that having been mentioned, of course, you can't be a sympathetic witness to what this guy went through as a kid. And I assume that if he's interested in the military, that it was not pretty, to say the least. So, you can ask him how his childhood was. And, and ask him with the full consciousness and with, the, I would say, the explicit statement, this is going to sound weird. This is going to sound out of left field, but indulge me, you know, for 20 minutes. Right? What was your relationship to authority? How were conflicts resolved when you were a kid? We all know the answer to these questions, but it's important that he know the answer to these questions. How were conflicts resolved when you were a kid? What happened when you had a disagreement with somebody in authority? What happened when you were asked or told to do something that you didn't understand or agree with? How were your preferences treated? Were you allowed to develop your own interests? What was your father's or mother's relationship with authority? What is the historical weight or relationship with authority through either side of your family? And if you don't know these questions, if you don't know the answers to these questions, as any human being, you can't do any good in this world. I mean, you can't until you know something about whatever formed you, whatever formed your parents, whatever formed your family environment, or your, then you can't, you you can't, you're just bouncing off history. You're like one of those dick di di dick little Newton balls that go back and forth. you're just reacting, reacting, reacting without thought. You are a machine, and soldiers are killbots right you are you have to be a machine to be a soldier. so at some point, this guy was uh gave up and became an empty obedience robot and if he doesn't get that, then the military. Will not seem weird, will not seem unfamiliar, will not seem brutal, will not seem sadistic, will not seem murderous, because we were talking with the earlier caller about people act out against others what they cannot feel themselves, right? If you can't feel your own death, then you will act it out against others. I, and I don't want to make this about my terrible childhood, but I, I remember my own death as a child. I remember the death, I remember what happened. I remember trying to escape from home at the age of four or so, packing up cookies, putting them in a it was a um pillowcase. I packed up cookies and I went out in the middle of the night. I opened the door. I was going to go out into the street at the age of four with some food. How desperate was I? How desperate was I that I would do that? It blows my mind to think about it even now. What the hell did I think I was going to do? Well, What I was going to do, what I was desperately hoping for, was that I was going to go out and find somebody who gave a damn that I was out in the street in the middle of the night. And that would not have happened. But I was hoping. I needed to find out whether that would happen. And I made it to the door and I made it out the front door. And my mother grabbed me and beat my head against the door. And I gave up. I remember that moment so clearly. I remember the taste of my own teeth and tongue and blood at that time and that's when i gave up and i said well i can't i can't survive as an individual i can't survive as a thinking being i can't survive as a free soul i can't she's too big she's too strong and and what was even worse than that and my mother screaming and beating me was that we lived in an apartment building and nobody came Nobody opened their doors and said, stop that. Nobody called the cops and said, there's a woman beating her child against a door. Nobody said or did anything, and that was the moment of my death. Ever since then, it's been a Frankenstein resurrection. And I will never be somebody who didn't die, but I can be somebody with a new life. And I'm not trying to shock and traumatize people with this. I've talked about it before. But it was a last break for freedom with a savage attack that everyone in a very close knit. I mean, these, these apartments had paper thin walls. There were dozens of apartments on every floor, everything. And this was in the hallway, right? It was a central hall. It was a central, like, um, shaft. So everyone could hear. It was the middle of the night. So it wasn't, I don't, I don't, it wasn't like two in the morning because I remember waiting in bed until it was dark. So it was probably around nine, ten o'clock at night, probably, I think it was in the fall. So people could hear. People could hear. And nobody did anything. And of course, that's when, when I think about that, that's when I said, I don't care what fucking price I have to bear. When I hear a child being abused, there is no way in hell that I'm not going to do anything. Because I know what it's like. I remember what it's like. Because I remember my death. I remember what it's like to have nobody say or do anything in the face of such a slaughter. And I, through this show, I don't draw back, though it costs me sometimes. I don't draw back from that. So, if this guy is not aware of what happened to him, and I can imagine it was much more extreme than what happened to me, then he's not going to be aware of this. He's not going to be aware of what he's acting out. That he can't experience his own death, so he inflicts it on others. He can't experience his own spiritual end in the hands of a brutal hierarchy at home, so he surrenders to a brutal hierarchy in the world. He feels so powerless that the only thing he can do to have an effect on this world is to point weapons at unarmed people or lightly armed people relative to
1: his military, right?
0: So that would be, that would be my suggestion. Focus on his history. And I'll just say one last thing and then you, you can have the final word. Um, sure. I would also say to him this if none of that works i would say to him this i would say well you realize that once you get into the military you have no guarantee of being sent to a just war no guarantee right so you can ask him do you think that invading iraq was morally valid right because it was all lies nothing to do with 911 no weapons of mass destruction this was all well established by the un years before they went in that they took this um, guy from Germany who had no connection, just wanted asylum and took all of his babblings and spun them into these fantasies about weapons of mass destruction. It was all easily disprovable and was vociferously disproven by other intelligence agencies. Was that a just war? Now, if he says, yeah, that's a just war, it's a great war, well, you know, bye-bye, right? That would be mine, because, I mean, then there's nothing to reason with. But if he says, no, I don't think that was a great war, I said, well, I would never want to put the moral health of my soul into the hands of a hierarchy capable of doing what it does in Iraq, capable of Abu Ghraib and Fallujah and all of the other atrocities that have been committed, why would you want to, like, you can't guarantee these people are going to point you at the guilty. Even if it were an appropriate response to point soldiers at the guilty, which I don't think it is. But even if we accept that it is, you have no guarantee that your superiors are never going to order you to do anything immoral. But you are surrendering your right of moral self-determination and you could be used as a tool of evil with no chance of escape and it's completely outside of your control whether that happens. And the only way that he can dodge that is to say that there's no such thing as morality, there's no such thing as right and wrong. If you have the gun, use the gun. In which case, I would say, well, there just goes another poison container out in the world to destroy the innocent, and there's nothing that I can do about it. But if there is a shred of honor and desire for moral self-determination, then that argument should have some effect Anyway, that's all I wanted to say, so uh, I'd like to leave you with the last word.
4: Um, this is a guy who i I just kind of watched. Like, you know how I think it's an understated thing, but through through high school you can just kind of watch. Like, I not, I've known this guy since he was probably five or seven, and we were close friends. And you just kind of watch people slowly degrade mentally, just slow. He's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And I remember in college, he's had, he's, he, he's had something like four near fatal car accidents. And I remember people I, would post on his, on his Facebook page where he had pictures of him, like, Oh no, your car. And he, he was like, wow, no one, no one cares if I die. Right. And, uh, I just saw that It's kind like of I'm paying you to prove my thesis. But sorry, go on. Yeah, exactly. And I talked about that. I, I talked about that on the phone call with him. I was like, I haven't I haven't been honest with you because it's really hard, but everyone I know you included seems to really be having a hard time and no one seems to be talking about it. And I um and he's not he wasn't ever like a patriot. He wasn't ever like he's, I mean, he went to bat, he went to college for a bachelor's degree in art. He's not like, uh, like he's a fairly sensitive and very intelligent person. And, uh, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go the direct what happened in your childhood route. And that's, that's where I'm going to go. I went, <laughs> I kind of skimmed the surface of that where it was. I talked about the current despair and the, and the moral arguments that, you know, you're going to be killing people and yeah, that, that won't help if that's what he wants you. to do.
1: Right.
4: Cause that'll be like,
0: that's a perk, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and no one's gonna, I don't think he's going to consciously admit that, that, you know, why, you know, why do I want to kill people? Uh, yeah yeah I guess i' got to go childhood, but
0: yeah i mean look to be frank the on, the odds of it of it helping are very low, but um I think it's the only it's the only approach that has any chance and if he if he has um uh, and, and it won't stop him i mean even if he has some breakthrough some big insight about holy shit, you know i was you know authority brutality blah blah blah, right if he has some big insight. Then just say to him, listen, can you, can you delay it by a week or two? You know, just, just, you can talk with me, you know, pay 200 bucks to send him to a therapist if you have to, right? That's buying right. human lives for 200 bucks. That's a pretty good deal, right? <laughs> but, uh, just ask him to delay it. Just delay. Just a little bit. Yeah, and you will, yeah, you will be the only, a friend of mine is up here listening to the show, that, that you will be the only person probably in his whole life who will ever try to help him make those connections. I mean, people don't understand how rare that is. People will actually sit down and try and help you make a connection between what's happened in the past and what you're doing in the present. That is so unbelievably rare that, um, uh, it's an hour and ever moment for him. Yeah.
4: I mean, I got, what's insane is it's like he is not, this is, uh, like, this was not what I expected. Like, almost everyone I knew growing up, I knew what to expect. And they weren't, you know, positive outcomes. But I didn't expect him to go military until, I guess, the car accidents were really obvious, that no one spoke up. It just had to... Uh,
0: well, but sorry, we'll just go over a little bit over here. Like, well, what do you know about, the, even, how long have you known this guy? Since he was seven. And what do you know about his childhood? Uh... His dad, I think,
4: is a violent alcoholic. Uh, I think his mom is uh, passive-aggressive,
0: kindness kind of thing. Uh, well, so you know, not stays with I a mean, violent he's... alcoholic and exposes her yeah. children. We've been down this road before, right? Yeah. So, um, a, so why is had it had shocking gun, to it you that like... he's got the capacity for this kind of violence? I mean, has he processed any of this? Has he talked about any of this? Does he even get what a brutal experience he had? I don't know. He doesn't. I mean, not at all. No, uh, of course, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't yeah. be doing it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, um, it's time for you to not be surprised by this. You've studied philosophy long enough, right? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand. I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize you in no, any way, shape, or form. But And, and I, I am continually surprised by things that I reasoned out 20 years ago. So I say this with all sensitivity and empathy. But it was going to be this or something, right? All that unprocessed pain and anger. And and not only unprocessed, but unacknowledged, un, uh, invisible, right? That's going to go somewhere. Unfortunately, it's going to go into bombs and bullets to the innocent, at least, right? Right. And although the people in Iraq are probably not doing any more to help their own children with abuse either. So in a sense, they're not innocent either, right? right. But just not directly to this guy. So, yeah, I would just try, try and awaken anything to do with what he experienced as a kid. Um, try and get him to see a counselor. Pay. If you can't afford it, let me know. I'll fund him for two therapy sessions. I'll pay. I mean, I, I, I couldn't think of a better way to spend money. Um, but uh, uh, just, you know, say. And, and you can say to him, look, you humor me. I'll pay. It'll take two hours of your, of your life to go. Two hours of your life. Uh, w- w- what's the harm, right? I mean, it, let's just say there's a possibility that this might be a big mistake. Just take two hours. Go talk to a therapist. It's free. I'll pay. Steph will pay. Don't worry, right? That's, that's the most that you can do, is to be honest and curious about what might have led him to this to offer to pay, and again, if you can't afford it, let me know. I'd be happy to pay. That's the best you can do. If he's not
1: going to accept any of that, then... Well, then it's over, right? Then, right. then the death won.
4: Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if I can afford it, uh,
0: Make the, might, make the offer. Make the offer. Email me. I'll I'll PayPal. Like I'll PayPal you. Just whatever. Right. Just make the offer. I I will be happy to pay for that. Okay.
4: And I think it, what's weird about it is like it's not that it's unexpected. I think there's like the the philosopher's procrastination where it's like, oh, it will like at worst he'll become and like just drink too much and I'll have like a couple years and then I can save him and then I can save all these other people and. Uh, I he I I feel like he'll he'll not go if I make the push because he was like, You're literally the only person who has even said boo to this, much less like cried and basically me not to go and said, You care if I die and all that. So
0: yeah. Right. And I mean you have to process what this is doing to your relationship, not with this guy, but to everybody else. Right. <laughs> so you have some heavy shit to process around the world that cheers this guy into thuggery right right so that's a challenge for you for you to work with but uh, you know i mean it's like the whole show is coming together right because what we talked about earlier that you you can't you can't stop him from joining the military of course not and you can't stop everyone from cheering this guy as he goes to shred his soul on battlefields of uselessness and murder you can't you can't stop him You know, all we can do is put the fucking lighthouse up. We can't stop people who are determined to run their ships into the rocks, right? And we can't do anything about their passengers. All we can do is put the lighthouse up and say, if you don't want to hit the rocks, sail away. All right. And it is the helplessness of virtue. It is the helplessness of virtue that we all have to struggle with. All have to struggle with it. I struggle with it every day. It is the helplessness of virtue, and the power of the brutality of history. You know, we are the fucking hobbits. You know, lust in Mordor, and the all-seeing eye of brutalized histories is has got the ring, <laughs> but we still have to fight, right? But uh, it is the helplessness but the fundamental and endless power of virtue that that we have to live by. Because we know it. I mean, I know. I know how powerful it is. But I know that people with guns can force everyone to do everything. But people, since Socrates' time and before, who've been exhorting people to virtue and honor and integrity and self-knowledge, You know, we're like gnats in a firestorm. We're just trying to find a way to get to another pocket of air to move on. We will win eventually. We will. And it seems ridiculous that we will, but we absolutely will, because consistency wins in the long run always. Virtue and integrity win win in the long run always. And sometimes it's a really freaking long run. But it is the helplessness in the moment. If you had a gun, you could get this guy's wallet in 30 (laughs) seconds. But you only have reason and virtue And you can't do a damn thing to shift his soul fundamentally, right?
1: Yeah. And that's painful. That's painful.
4: But you gotta try.
0: For you, fundamentally, right?
4: Yeah, I I was kind of surprised by how I was. I was scared to talk to him about it, and then once I did it it felt right I, I, like i think courage is almost centered around the last step before vulnerability cuz i was just like way more vulnerable during the conversation than i expected with him like
0: yeah courage know, is the moment more. before courage is you know for me it was like when i went skydiving the courage was dropping out of the plane once i was out of the plane there was no need for courage anymore because i was just yeah. just don't die right <laughs> pull the chute and, and uh come down right uh, don't land in a telephone pole or whatever right so the the courage is all in the leading up to once you're launched um you don't need it anymore i mean and i agree with you that is but uh, I mean, the courage for me was all taking the step to do this full time and once i was in there i was like well let's roll man <laughs> i mean that's what i'm doing that's what i'm doing and so I agree with you. The courage is all in the anticipation. It's, uh, it's never so bad when you're in. And as always, if you get a chance, let us know how it goes. Keep it all anonymous, of course, but that would be very helpful for me. And yeah. let me know if you, need, if you need me to cover some of this guy's, cover all of this guy's costs for a couple of therapy sessions. I will, uh, I will, uh, I will sell the kidney to do it.
4: Yeah, I, he, he leaves on uh, on Wednesday, so it's, I guess, I'm, I Wait, might be doing leaves. that.
0: I thought you said he was not signed up yet. No, no,
4: no, he is signed up. He is signed up and...
0: Oh, so th- isn't this all moot then?
4: No, I think there's, uh like, I've known, there are people on FDR who were basically in boot camp and just... Uh, I mean, oh, you just can fake out,
0: your way out or whatever at that point, or you can do some shit to get yourself out, right? yeah yeah okay, well that's that's look, okay, then it's worthwhile then at least get him to one therapy session, or at least get him okay. to someone who's posted I don't know about this lifeperson.com, or you can get someone who give him a phone thing, any, anything. get him to some mental health professional, hopefully who've had some experience with this, and uh, uh, you know even if even get him to one session or whatever, I think that would be to me important. Okay All right. Thank you, Steph. All right, man, keep us posted, and thank you everybody so much for a, a very exciting. Exciting show that started with me contemplating animal butter uh, as uh, <laughs> a cost-saving measure and ended up with uh, us hopefully saving some lives in the future by getting this guy some help. So uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate all of your support. Um, I hate to put the word out, but uh, I'm going to um, because I have to be sort of financially responsible to this conversation uh, if you do have any extra change rolling around. It's tax season, and of course, the two biggest sources of my donations are America and the U.S. that have been hit the hardest by the uh, the continued recession so uh, if you can uh, dig a little deeper I would hugely appreciate it um, there are still good goodies that go out to the um, the donators and the subscribers uh, my novel um, uh, The God of Atheists is available to Gold Plus and all sorts of goodies up there so I really do appreciate that uh, I hate to be Mr. Uh, you know, send me some shekels but uh, it uh, has been a little dry recently uh, and I think it's, uh, it's a tough season for people but the costs of the show continue uh, whether or not um, <laughs> whether or not the taxes uh, come rolling in or not. So uh, I would really appreciate it if you could. You just go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate, and uh, uh, it is much, muchly appreciated. So have yourselves a fantastic, fantastic week. And uh, I had an interesting interview with a guy recently on net neutrality, which uh, I will be uh, posting up uh, probably tomorrow. So uh, thanks again for all of your support and helping me do all of that stuff. And, of course, if you have any suggestions about the show, or anything else to do with what we're doing, always feel free to uh, drop me uh, a line, and uh, I will be uh, happy to to take your suggestions.
1: All the best.